Grappling fandom members, I welcome you most sincerely to this extravaganza of verbal communication of our post-Norman tongue in an epic of epic epicness of conversation within the audio recorded medium transmitted through the internet waves. Oh, I just realised I said this sentence way longer than it needed to be, but that's what we're talking about for this episode of Match of the Week. Simon Cross, my co-host, what are we communicating with each other over the temporal space that is Skype and then recording into the Audacity computerized audio recording equipment and I will edit post haste Uh, uh, or uploading onto a RSS feed (laughs) on the internet today? I'll tell the listeners in a second, but I, I've just got to go through the kaleidoscope of emotions I went through during your first, I think it was one sentence, I don't know, <laughs> for about five to seven words. I'm like, what is he doing? And then the penny slowly dropped. And then towards the end, I'm like, how long can Lorcan keep this going? I keep expecting Paul Merton to, in- to interrupt me and say it was repetition. <laughs> but the reason... Lorcan is speaking that way will be revealed shortly as we this week are talking about the 2004 blood bad blood not blood blood like bad barbie i can't speak that's a problem whereas i can speak too much (laughs) we're talking about the 2004 bad blood pay-per-view in which there is the helena cell match between triple h and sean michaels This is a match that really wanted to be one of the most remembered matches of all time, and they concluded was that at the end of it. And I'm not sure if anyone's spoken about it for the past 10 years. And that's one of the reasons why I wanted Dust to talk about it for this show. If it has any reputation, it has the reputation for being a bloated, self-conscious epic, I suppose would be the way to describe it. And the reason that it rung in my head to talk about really came from until the recent upgrade to NXT 2.0 upgrading quote marks when we were talking about what a tr- WWE with Triple H and Shawn Michaels in charge of it when it was 2014 to 2017 or so NXT it seemed very exciting yes But then towards the end of the NXT run, as the 45-50 minute Johnny Gargano, Adam Cole, Tommaso Ciampa matches started to get ever so more epic with their epicness. Yes. And over the top, people started to wonder if we'd sort of jump the shark. And I thought maybe what the future holds for us are matches like this that people don't don't really talk about when they talk about Shawn Michaels and Triple H matches. When they do, they talk about their SummerSlam 2002 match, the WrestleMania 20 triple threat match with Chris Benoit, the match they had on the Monday Night Raw in either December of 2003 or January of 2004, which really reignited the feud that then got ended by this Hell in a Cell match. Mm. 
But they don't really talk about this feud, Kappa. And I wondered why. And I was wondered if I've ever actually watched this from start to finish. I knew I'd seen the finish. But this, I think, might be the first time I watched it from start to finish. I, you know, I, I brought a can of Coke Zero with me for the journey. Now, when you said, um, I know I'd seen the finish, I saw about five finishes in this match. Well, I, I, I think I might defend this match to a, to a certain degree. Go on. But not necessarily right now. Just as we go along. Had you watched this match before? No. Because 2004 would have been sort of when you'd be... I don't know if this is one of the ones you would have rented out of the Nuneaton Library if there's ever been a contradiction in terms, ladies and gentlemen. I think that might be it. All right, little sidebar. Because um, <laughs> I know what the listeners really tune in for is local governmental decisions. <laughs> but Nuneaton Libraries actually do a multi-million pound refurb. What, into a Costa Coffee? No, not into a Costa Coffee. <laughs> they wouldn't know what a Frappuccino was in Nuneaton. <laughs> but yeah, so there. Mm. That is the worst bit of sassback I've possibly ever given in my sassback? entire life. <laughs> Isn't that the thing up in the mountains people keep saying is real? <laughs> All right, fine, fine. Very good. I deserve that. Did you know this match really by reputation or anything? Did you know anything about this match? Did you know it had existed? I knew it had happened at some point. That is all I knew about this match. Because I, I, I remember reading a uh, compilation about Hell in the Cells. But it doesn't really stick out to me. And I, this is the first time I had watched it in its entirety. But yeah, I just knew it was there prior to watching this time around. And what were your opening thoughts then going into this? As Lorcan's already mentioned, one of the reasons we picked this episode is to take a look into what the two two of the creative forces behind NXT in its argued golden period would have shaped wrestling to have been like. And within the, within the seconds of the bell ringing, it's it's quite obvious because those two really like take in the crowd and they really like. Let that stare down breathe, so to speak. They let everything breathe in this. Yeah. And if I was to look, to, to talk about the first act or like the first third of this match, it is a lot of move, reaction, breathe, move, reaction, breathe pattern. Well, it's a relatively basic brawl. Yeah. They just go all the way around the ring. They, they start with a, a very intense lockup. But that immediately goes into punches and chops and that in the rope into the corner and everything. And then they really take it in turns throughout it all. Taking control and and beating down on their opponents. And it just escalates. And it's you can definitely see the thematic links of these matches with what, say, Johnny Gargano and Adam Cole were doing in the later matches and the Tommaso Ciampa, Johnny Gargano matches as well. I think Shawn Michaels saw a lot of himself in Johnny Gargano. Mm. And Triple H was going through this whole period of... The, I mean, this is always referred to as the Reign of Terror time, I suppose. Yes. Although this is during the longest period that he goes without the world title. But if we take that period really from Triple H's heel turn against Shawn Michaels at SummerSlam 02... And around the time after that match at SummerSlam 02, a couple of weeks later, Brock Lesnar 
goes to become a SmackDown exclusive. They stop the undisputed world title being a floating championship. And Triple H gets handed the world heavyweight title. Big gold. And thus begins the reign of terror. Where he is really getting to live his Ric Flair, Harley Race fantasy. (laughs) Being the champion. And having his own four horsemen. And the idea that he's taking down, fighting off a, a barrage of various rivals throughout the run. Sometimes they get the belt off him briefly, but he always reclaims it. Mm. They they repeat old classic storylines of him putting out a bounty for Goldberg, like Harley Race did for Ric Flair. Yeah, he shaves his beard, so this is clean shaven Triple H. He starts to change up his look a bit. And he starts wearing trunks of varying colours, which again I feel is like a Ric Flair cosplay sort of thing. Because yeah. I never quite got used to Triple H when he wrestled in like purple trunks or red trunks or anything. It just seemed like he was right for for variants of black. Yeah, black black trunks Triple H is best trunks Triple H. I do agree with you there. But what was also so curious about this time was this was him coming back after the injury in 2001 and up to that point he was seen as really the best worker in the wwe the yeah. 2000 triple h is one of the best single year runs of any wrestler in the wwe's history it truly truly is and 2000 is also arguably the best year consistently for wwe for the quality of their output mm. so you can argue that in 2000 the best wrestler for the best year of the wwe was triple h yeah and during that time, he was doing epics of epic epicness at times, occasionally. He had the Iron Man match with The Rock, and that is a genuinely, from my memory, excellent match. And then he has the three stages of hell match with Steve Austin, which is the other obvious uh, reference point to when you think of the NXT matches with the wildness of the weaponry and the, you know, the the overdoing, arguably, of gimmick matches and yeah. three-act structure and everything. I mean, that match also went about 42 minutes, but it had the benefit of the three-fall, three-act structure. Mm. Whereas with this one, what I noticed was it wasn't a three-act structure, but there was a three-weapon structure, I suppose. Yes, yes. Yeah, I, I get where coming from there. We go chair, ladder, table. Mm. Uh, and there's a bit of Chekhoving. Uh, not at first, but the second chair is definitely a Chekhov's chair. Because Trips brings that into the ring, but it's not... He doesn't use it first, it's Sean. I can't remember... Sean cuts him off. I don't know if it's with a low blow or mm. how Sean cuts him off. There's, there's a quite a few Sean cut-offs in this, so they start to blur. <laughs> You'll have to forgive me. Weapons are used. Uh, they're not used in any crazy way. Like, I will say for this match, compared to what I saw in a match which was around 18 months of this, like previous, the Lesnar-Taker Judgment Day match, their first Hell in a Cell match, which I prefer... That was no mercy, not Judgment Day. I do apologise. Yeah, that match, which I prefer to this match and as the better Lesnar-Hell in a Cell match, uh, that just seemed a wilder, wilder brawl. It seems... When this, it's all based around the emotion we're meant to feel for these two people. Mm. And that's why I feel watching this match cold hasn't helped it, in my opinion. And to link to 
the NXT booking example, when you talked mentioned earlier about jumping the shark, I didn't notice that at the time with Cole and Gargano because I was emotionally invested. But the takeover for the WrestleMania, either just gone or the one before, I think just gone, where it was Cole, Adam Cole versus Kyle O'Reilly in their unsanctioned match. Yeah. I was interested in the feud, but I wasn't. I haven't been watching NXT week to week, so I came into that match, Cole, and that that really dragged. I was saying that about Cole Gargano towards the end of their feud, but this this felt really, really long, and that's the source, I think, of the uh, epic epicness problem. It only works if you've got the emotional investment. For if a casual fan just tuned in, I know it's on pay-per-view, so it wouldn't happen for this particular match, but if a casual fan tuned in, I don't think they'd get hooked. They're like, who are these people? Uh, I don't think that's entirely fair. That You've got to tell a story over a series of chapters, and it's not necessarily their fault if someone comes in on the final chapter to get angry at them. You know, if someone watches the final episode of Breaking Bad, you can't say, well, we have to make sure everyone knows what's going to happen, what, what everything means. So I I see where you're coming from, whereas because but that's kind of a common refrain for us with these match of the weeks, and we're almost making match of the week seem like it's a redundant exercise <laughs> if we keep saying that. But we do know that history, and we've got the video packages, and also the Triple H Shawn Michaels feud was the one thing that got people were emotionally invested, if anything, during Triple H's reign of terror. This was like the highlight of that run up until maybe his trilogy of matches with Batista where the reign of terror finally ended. Okay, I take your point, but maybe not in this specific case, but in the creative vibe we've got, which clearly we, we're looking at this match, and is this where Prime NXT was sourced from in terms of match structure? You take the Adam Cole and Johnny Gagano feud. When you start your first act as an epic thing of epic epicness. By the end, you are at the stage where you're in a three stages of hell match, someone kicking out of a top of the cage Panama sunrise through tables. Yeah. If you, this didn't start in fifth when you take the story as a whole. No. But the attitude that came from it is if you're having a free pay-per-view story, Fred, and you start in fifth, well, then you've got to in, like you've got to go to like ridiculous gears, like this is Spinal Tap style. The, the Triple H Shawn Michaels match did start in fifth gear. The SummerSlam 2002 match was a big nasty brawl, and it was. I mean, when I was watching that, I assumed it was a one and done that Shawn Michaels was just coming back for one last match. Mm. Very few matches that like affected me emotionally as that one because I was constantly terrified that something was going to happen to Shawn's back. In hindsight, you realise. He must have been in a much better place than I thought he was. Yeah. I thought this was like a sort of reckless Shawn Michaels being crazy. Something that he played up to brilliantly in that match when he goes, he's climbing up to the top rope to do a splash on Triple H on the outside through a table. And he literally sort of looks at the camera and does the loopy thing, looping fingers things go, yeah, I know I'm crazy. This is ridiculous. And so... I mean, the the spot that you see in this match where Triple H does a backbreaker on Sean onto a steel cage, folded steel chair, sorry. Yeah. I remember they did that spot in the in the uh, SummerSlam match and I, like, screamed, like, out of fear that that was going to be the one that does it to Sean Michaels because I just thought he was still 
basically one bad bump away from being paralyzed. Okay. And this two years on, I didn't have that fear anymore. Although they tried to play it up at this at the start of the match where Shawn Michaels is in control until his back starts giving out on him. Okay, I can empathise with that because whilst not for Shawn, my equivalent was Daniel Bryan's return match uh, yeah. in that tag match with Shane against Sammy and Kevin. Anytime he landed somewhere even slightly like it could be on his neck or head, I, I did wince during that match. So I do understand where you're coming from. I think I'll always do that during any future match with him as well. Yeah, I, I know. I, yeah, yeah. There will always be an element of that, but especially like the first time you see it in a while, it's it's more pronounced. The basic problem was, I think that Triple H and Shawn Michaels felt like they had something to prove in this match that they set themselves too high a bar to clear, and they also made the mistake. And this is a mistake we made to this day, especially in New Japan right now. That length means quality. It's not the size, mate. It's how you use it. <laughs> And I was going to say the Ron Jeremy school of wrestling booking. Interesting. Yeah. And Triple H had done those epics. As I was saying, he'd done the 60 minute Iron Man with The Rock. He'd done the 42 minute three stages of hell match with Stone Cold Steve Austin. Around this time, he had an Iron Man match with Chris Benoit on on an episode of Raw for the world title. Mm. He loved doing those. He would love doing the Royal Rumbles where he would do long, long runs in it and be always be one of the last two wrestlers in it. And Shawn Michaels loves those ones as well. He does do, you know, he did the Iron Man match and he did several 30 minute Iron Man matches. He has that John Cena match in London that goes 50 something minutes. Yeah. It's a common thing they both like to do. That's the one against Kurt Angle as well, doesn't it? Yep, the one with Kurt Angle. He does a 30 minute one with the Kurt Angle, yeah. And. There are some great matches that have gone long, and the length has helped with those matches, like some of the Kenny Omega, you know, all but the the G1 Climax match, the Omega Okada matches. There are several classic long, long matches. You obviously had that Goshi Izaki Takashi Sugiura match that was a bit divisive, <laughs> but all that recent Joshi match that you gave five stars to. And I think the basic, what you have to have, though, is a crowd that is committed to go with you on this journey and can keep up their frenzy. And the basic problem is, and when I was reading, I read up on what Dave Meltzer and Brian Alvarez and them lot said, and they were actually a lot more generous with their rating of the match than I thought they would be, based on what I thought the reputation of this match was. But they said, essentially, the crowd was not going with this to the level that it needed to go. No, I think even at one point I heard a very... It wasn't a big chant. It wasn't like a long chant. It wasn't a significant proportion of the crowd. But I swear I heard a boring chant halfway through this. I heard at least one fan constantly telling someone one of them to get up for being a sissy. Oh, I, yes, yes. He's like um, hard cam side uh, on the right-hand side. I, I heard that same guy. To go back to like the epicness and epicness as a slight like, story device and the whole fifth gear thing. Is the matches you pointed out had gaps, fairly significant gaps between them. Oh. Whereas towards the end with NXT, it was like every takeover would yeah. be like an act one, act two, or act three. And they would, you know, there would be like starting from fifth and going and going. That's where it became jumping the shark because we didn't have a gap for anything even between the matches to breathe. It came to be the default thought that for this match to be great, it needs to be 30 mi- 35 minutes plus. Yes. Like for them to have a great War Games match, 
then everyone has to be in the ring for at least 20 minutes and you don't get all the people in the ring until 25 minutes into the match. Yes. And like there has to be at least four 2.99 level false finishes. But I will say actually, one thing I'll defend, and I was saying I'll defend this match a little bit. They don't actually do the super epic kickouts in a way that is as frustrating as you get them in a lot of modern day wrestling. Because it takes them an age to make the pin in the first place. Sometimes slightly too long. But but weirdly, because it's too long, that makes the kick out more believable. Yeah. But there's there's one particular moment where Triple H takes an age draping his arm. Yeah. And it's in the F age. I'm like, well, that wouldn't work. You would know if you're exhausted just, just to fall towards your opponent. Well, that's how he won the... Three stages of hell match against Steve Austin. Yeah. And the way that they booked it, I guess, was like the way that they could appease Steve Austin. I mean, I always thought it was a fantastic political play how Triple H was able to convince the people in charge to have him win this match against Steve Austin with a big epic brawl as a feud blow off where they can't have the follow up match because Steve Austin's going to main event the next show at WrestleMania for the title. <laughs> I definitely think I should win this match against Steve Austin. <laughs> and win it by winning two straight falls. Yeah. Because I'll let him out-wrestle me in the first fall, but then I get to beat him in a street fight and a steel cage match. How they booked the finish was that they both hit each other with a weapon, they both fell down, and Triple H just happened to fall down on him on top of Steve Austin. Uh. And the idea of this is that it's like that's the last bit of energy that when they're getting up, he just sort of, sure, Michael just happens to be where he is, this close, that he falls on his back... And that means he can be pinned and Triple H can get the win. And they do it so that Triple H is helped out of the ring by Evolution with a far too long-haired Batista. <laughs> that was unsettling, seeing Batista with that much hair. You're reminded... Whereas Shawn Michaels is able to walk out on his own... Uh, by, by his own yeah. strength. Yeah, which is sort of a, a play on the... Um, Cactus Jack Triple H Street Fight as well at the 2000 Royal Rumble. See, when you told said that finisher uh, finish between Austin and Triple H, you immediately reminded me of, I cannot remember which, I think the second one, the Gagano Champa um, one, where Champa sort of falls onto his feet to beat mm. the tank out while Johnny doesn't. Yeah. So they've even... It's weird how you've mentioned... Did you say Gargano falls to his feet whilst Johnny doesn't? Or did you say Champa? Champa falls to his uh, feet whilst Johnny doesn't. Yeah. It, I cannot remember yeah. the... Like, the Some things like that are like a little yeah. bit too cutey, cute in their in their idea, really. Uh, too too technically, you know, winning it on a technicality sort of thing. Along Like a more ridiculous version of Triple H falling on top of Steve Austin. Like that's one level of luck. This is a whole other ridiculous level of luck. Yeah. But it's interesting to see, like, obviously a Triple H finish and then, like, a Triple H-inspired creative process have another link to it as well as, like, the epic epicness that we keep referring to. (laughs) I've always had a feeling that Triple H is a very insecure man. And, for example, I remember this moment when, you know when he has the big injury the first time and they bring him back at Madison Square Garden? Oh, with his denim jacket. Yeah, his denim jacket over his leather jacket. Yes. And, he, you know, he he wore a stovepipe hat over a trilby as well. <laughs> the way they built it up. And I also remember when he was talking to his surgeon about what happened to him. 
And he just made sure to say, yeah, and then I finished the match. And, <laughs> got, <you> know, <laughs> and my mum said I was brave. <laughs> and he always needs to be lauded. He always needs to be seen as the best. And he always needs to be given the opportunities to show that he's the best over other people. Does, you know, certain people are indulged. Shawn Michaels gets indulged by Vince. Triple H gets indulged by Vince. Shane McMahon gets indulged by Vince. No one else gets to fall 30 feet off the various scaffoldings onto crash mats. That are actual full-time workers that could do with more of the attention. But Shawn, Shane McMahon would get to get his kicks on live TV for our, for our entertainment. So this is the problem of it, like, you know, two levels of indulgence that Vince is willing to give these guys. And it's also at a time when the brands have split off and they've got their own pay-per-view, so there's a bit more of a paucity in the roster anyway. Mm. They, they did a whole thing, actually, because I, I caught... Because I wanted to make sure if I saw any video packages, so I, like, started it at the finish of the previous match, which was Chris Benoit against Kane. Yeah. And you could tell they were buy, trying to buy some time there because Chris Benoit comes back. And they sort of do it like an NFL or like a you know a post-match interview where they're playing replays of stuff for Benoit to look at and explain what happened. And you can tell that Benoit is both knackered and only had like a certain number of lines that he knew what he wanted to say <laughs> and just end up repeating them. And they kept saying, and now let's look at this. You could almost imagine Benoit going, oh, for fuck's sake, I want a shower. Yeah. And that makes me wonder, like, what if Benoit just walked the wrong way? And they're like, uh, Sean, Triple H, you're going to have to go another 10 minutes. Yeah. Oh, no. Uh, but yeah, the problem is that they're trying to force a classic on us. J- and JR is going all out epic from the start. Oh, it reminded him. me a lot, actually, of the uh, over-hyperbolic nature of the NXT UK commentators during that Volta Dragonov match that I was saying was kind of getting on my wick. Yeah. And then on the night, the Raw after, they have JR bring them both out. And they try to get the crowd to cheer them for what they did. And the, che- the crowd's just not having it. And it's just when you try to make these artificial moments, it's like when John Cena and Randy Orton had that face off at the Royal Rumble. Oh. And they wanted it to be like Hogan Warrior again. And the crowd was like, we've seen this 17,000 times. Go away. We yeah. don't care. So JR saying, that was one hell of a match, guys. It didn't exactly equal the moment when the like, the roar after No Mercy 1999, where uh, Jeff, where the Hardy Boys and Edge and Christian had given us this ladder match that no one expected to be the showstopper stealer and they milked it to get a standing ovation but they got that standing ovation see that's triple h and sean didn't i want to pull you like back a sentence there no one expected that and i think that's the problem when you set up yeah sequels to like classic matches because obviously in their mind sequels in general yeah sequels in general but obviously in their mind this would be the classic for the the sequel to the 2002 SummerSlam. Walter Dragunov 2. They're definitely from, definitely from the start. They're like, oh my God, this is going to be amazing. Like, let, let it be a thing first. But to be fair to them, I mean, I think the second, that was one of the reasons why I loved that second match so much. It was 22 minutes. Yeah. I think that might have meant it was actually shorter than the previous uh, match was. Whereas with this one, it's like, this is the final one. We've had all these great matches. They've had blood. They've had weapons. So this has to have the most blood, the most weapons, the most time. Triple H blades twice in the match. And a little caveat, I guess, for the Walter Dragunov thing. Uh, that has the anomaly of the crowd not being there the first time round. So, like, the crowd go with them. Because even though it's the second time, in terms of having it play out in front of a live wrestling crowd, it's the first time. Hmm. 
And again, it's a receptive crowd. Yeah. Although they had to win them over a little bit, but they were with it. Uh, and that was one thing I think that helps the NXT matches. They they nearly always had that rabid, you know, most hardcore of WWE fan. Well, not just WWE fans, but wrestling fans. Oh yeah, and you know, like I I fell I I loved Johnny in that feud against Champa. I loved the character. I I felt I was with it at the time, but I can look back now with um with. With a colder view. There's going to be a taint to some of those matches. Yeah. I do wonder if even the first match that I... Because apparently Gargano gets a lot of stick now online. I don't really follow it, but... Mm. There's a lot of tiring against his name. I'll be curious if Adam Cole will... I can't see him getting the 45-minute matches in in uh, AEW. There's not enough space. No, no, there's too many guys that can, you know. I mean, Kenny Omega hasn't really gone over 30, has he, so far? Maybe with the Young Bucks match? Yes, Revolution, or possibly, I can't remember. No, I can't remember how long the Hangman was. one was. But do you think, I mean, we're at that point now where it feels like it's becoming something that people have to rebel against. These things go in peaks and troughs, and I can see, over time long matches being seen as a, a bad thing. Well, wrestling like fashion is cyclical, isn't it? It's not necessarily cyclical, but it flows. It ebbs and flows. Mm. I'll say that much. And so it was really the Kenny Omega Kazuchika Okada match going 46 minutes at the Tokyo Dome or 48 minutes. That was really the one that started off this new wave of it. Yeah. And then it was like Johnny Gargano and Champa. All of Johnny Gargano's NXT main events would go like th- all would go over thirty minutes. And like I think if Triple H had his way, when he if he'd booked everything about his career, he would have nearly always booked himself to go thirty minutes plus. He always mm. feels like he's got to prove something. And what's funny as well with Triple H at this point, this is a weird look for Triple H because I think he'd been trying to make a baby around this time. And so certain things that he was doing to his exercise regimen had to go out the window for the time being. So he looks like a slightly puffed out version of Greg Valentine at moments <laughs> in this match. Oh, uh, I think Power Slam said that by um, something like that around the time. I think it's the white boots as well. The white boots look weird on him for some reason. And what was also surprising was Shawn Michaels was a lot bulkier than i remembered him being at this point yeah i mean he was never you know jacked but he definitely had more mass mass on him in the arms and the shoulders and the chest than i ever remember him having on this comeback so i think he bulked up since his SummerSlam 02 time like he was a he was a rail as far as wrestlers go in the 2002 mm. survivor series elimination chamber match we haven't been doing a lot had he like he it's not like he'd been not training whilst he was at home like to re- to active wrestler levels he he'd been sat at home <laughs> recuperating yeah i guess he'd just been doing cardio yeah but um it's funny though because you can also see Shawn michaels is slightly less self-indulgent but only slightly i guess because he never had the ear of management yeah but he always but what he loves to do is bring the spectacle and i suppose that's what all the gaga all the weaponry and everything is and then when you see it now i, I wonder if what they think is like this match would have been better if we'd have brought in three tables and we brought in, like, done more stuff because that's what all the Johnny Gargano, Adam Cole, and that sort of stuff ha- ends up having later on. Yeah. I-, I appreciated as well that there was only one moment of loud yelling so that the camera catches them because by the time we get the other sort of epic 
epicness Hell in a Cell match involving these two with The Undertaker. Oh. The, that, that's like half of it is scripted dialogue. Yeah. So be, be thankful for Small Mercies. I think this was a match that like in front of a, warm, a, a, a hot audience, a hot crowd, would have more fondly thought of. It probably yeah. wouldn't have been seen as good as the other ones, but it wouldn't have been seen as like the ultimate self-indulgent, pretentious. It would have been, I don't think it would be seen as pretentious. And I think this match has a bit of pretension to it because it's presenting something that is utterly contrary to what everyone else sees it as, including the people in the crowd. Yes. But I do give them credit for certain elements of psychology that didn't bother me as much. You know, I said, I'm not as angered by the kickouts in this one. Because it is just, it takes so bloody long for them to get the pin. Maybe they milk it with the double down, and that's annoying. But at least that makes the kickouts more believable to me. See, and they do, and they do spend pretty much the whole final five or six minutes just not able to get up and having to rely on each other. And also, I will say this as well: Triple H walks into a sweet chin music maybe better than anyone else does. Oh yes, yes, I will give you that. All the kickouts, I don't think the crowd. I think. The first time it could have been a finish, the crowd. After that, the crowd are a bit. The false finishes do the crowd in a bit, and that doesn't yeah. help the pretension. Like, see, I think it's the first fifteen minutes that does the crowd in. See, I have a theory as well about like how receptive and loud audiences are, based on experiences of seeing shows in Edinburgh. But the, I remember the first time I really noticed it was when I saw Austin Powers' Gold Member, where like the first couple of laughs, the first couple of jokes in a film. People subconsciously gauge how loud the laughter is in the audience at a film, and they feel like they can't laugh any louder than that. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I completely subscribe to what you're saying there. So I feel like they're used to a match going at a quicker pace, like because it is slowly fought the first fifteen minutes, and that's the problem with a lot of these long matches. You have to. It, it's more like let's do the moves that we would do, but just space it out over forty-five minutes. So let's sell. Let's do psychology. And that's like, just not necessarily moving slower doesn't make it more psychologically sound. Yeah, I think that the sheer amount of false finishes at the end shade it for me in terms of more annoying than the first 15 minutes. But the first 15 minutes are quite ploddy. And it's obviously ploddy. Yeah, I mean, and the whole thing, what is it? Two or three pedigrees that Triple H has to do to win the match? I think three. Okay. What I do like, though, is that the final pedigree is barely a pedigree. Yeah. Like, the, it's almost like the way that Shawn Michaels starts to stand up, like, it's almost that fortunate for Triple H that he's a bit taller, so he's sort of on top of him. And so it's like, oh, fucking hell, this is a pedigree! <laughs> do it! <laughs> I think that this is not as bad as people say it is. Dave Meltzer gave it three and three quarter stars, and Brian Alvarez gave it four. And I would probably be in somewhere in the three to four range. I suppose maybe three and a half if I'm being generous. If it was in front of a, a a rabid crowd, then I would have said. Apparently, this crowd was like it was like really bad for a pay per view numbers at that point. Yeah, like like the arena was only half full. Like the whole of the top tier had to be. Well, it's off. in uh, Columbus, Ohio, yeah. which doesn't strike me as one of the like the hot hot wrestling towns. Yeah, and in a weird twist of fate, that is the venue that's going to be hosting uh, Extreme Rules this week. Oh. I did not plan for that to be how it happened, but that is how it happened. So let's hope they're more receptive to that show. Oh, I haven't checked, obviously, like what's gone on in the last few days, but 
uh, as to my last knowledge, there wasn't a single stipulation match for Extreme Rules. Which well, they've bizarre. just added. They've just made one of them an Extreme Rules match because someone just went, uh, "Guys, this is Extreme." Oh fuck! You were saying actually that was one of the things you texted me. Uh, you missed the days when a match became a Hell in a Cell match because it was the feud ender. Yes, because the video package, the crowd pop for when Bischoff screams that it's going to be Hell in a Cell. I'm like, you, you just don't get that now. And when, and when you do, on the odd occasion you do get that, it's diluted because of what we have every October, November? October. But the thing is, and I was saying this to you, at this time, they were associating the Hell in a Cell with this June pay-per-view. In June 2003, it had been a Hell in a Cell match for Triple H against Kevin Nash. Then this one, it was Triple H against Shawn Michaels. Are you beginning to detect a pattern here? And then the year after, my guess is that was what it was meant to be. But then Bad Blood became a SmackDown pay-per-view because they had to fit in ECW One Night Stand, I think. Or maybe there was no Bad Blood. But basically, ECW One Night Stand took the place of that, and so they had to extend the Triple H-Batista feud to Vengeance, which was what became the Hell in a Cell match, and that's the pay-per-view afterwards. And Triple H loved being the, the master of the Hell in a Cell, it has to be said. Yeah. That was one of the things I always was a bitter as well, that um, Batista and Brock Lesnar never had a feud, because I wanted them to have a feud that included them having a Hell in a Cell match, because it was going to be the one guy that beat The Undertaker in a Hell in a Cell. Against the one guy that had been beating Triple H in the Hell in a Cell. Yeah, yeah, that's a good selling point. Mm. I mean, there were tons of great selling points you could have done with that feud. Um, I mean, just look at them. They never did one of them. Because I remember as well, there was a time where Batista hadn't beaten Edge. But also Triple H never beaten Batista. So I've always wanted this to happen, that there'd be a triple threat match. Where the stipulation is that one of them's got to pin someone that they've never pinned before. Because I didn't know if Edge had ever pinned Triple H. So it would have been like a triple threat between all those three, and it'd be like Edge would have to pin Triple H, Triple H would have to pin Batista, Batista would have to pin Edge for yeah. the match to end. I always like those sort of, you know, quirks. I've always had problems with the triple threat match, but just quirks that make a match more interesting because it plays into the dynamics of the relationships, and that's what this does. And you know, and and little little touches like when Shawn Michaels brings out the ladder, and that's the sign of Shawn Michaels. And I also love how that is that like. Shawn Michaels been beating up Triple H with the lad with the chair that Triple H had brought in with those wild chair shots to the head. The first ones protect like you could see his hand get up for the first one. That is absolutely not the case for the second one. <laughs> or it is, and they're just very good at covering it. And then Triple H sort of gives him an emergency face buster to get him out of the ring, to get him away from him. Yeah. But Shawn Michaels falls out of the ring towards the ring apron where he knows there's a ladder here. And he pulls it out immediately and has this mischievous smile on his face. Uh, and that's it's always fun when you just see Shawn... Like, and whenever Shawn Michaels or Jeff Hardy suddenly produces a ladder, it will always get a re- reaction, just like a, a Dudley boy suddenly having a table. Favourite one for Shawn Michaels' ladder is when he finds the uh, Jeff Hardy extra mm. tall ladder for his uh, street fight against Vince. Mm. It's interesting that they never brought the sledgehammer into this, especially since... You know, they always love those sort of feud cappers, what started it, ends it. Uh, like how with The Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, Hound the Cell match, they made it so that essentially the feud ended when The Undertaker smashes Shawn Michaels over the head with the chair and then yeah. he came, be, is able to 
attack him, so Shawn Michaels gets the win. And that was also a thing that I don't think they played up enough that these both go- these guys were going in undefeated in Hell in a Cell matches. They said that with Triple H, but Shawn Michaels, this would have been, I think, his second ever one, and the only other one he'd had, he'd won against The Undertaker. Yeah. I thought they would have played that up a bit more. But, yeah. But they just had, they had, it's so funny when you just have this plan for what it's going to be, and what it what it was in your head just does not match the reality, but you really need to still say what was in your head was what happened. And some of that's just pay-per-view hyperbole. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Yeah. And wrestling is hyperbole. But when, when, it's, when it's attached to the ego of Triple H that was clearly a bit out of control at this point. Yeah. That, that made it a problem. And that makes it a match that I think people were keen to not praise. And I think there are things in this that are praiseworthy. And hopefully you can help out when this switched. They get in the ring, then they lower the cell. And it's no yeah. longer that's no longer the case. They lower the cell, then people go in. Well, I think they've done it both ways at various points. That was back at a time when the cell was as over as any wrestler. Yeah, I love that. You know, the cell was really well protected actually throughout this time, which was strange because it had started off at such a high point with both the Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, and Undertaker Mankind matches involving them going onto the roof immediately. And then they had to sort of contain themselves over time, and then it just became you couldn't even bleed in the matches. Yeah. Um, I, I was like, God, that's such a weak blade job from Triple H at the start, and it's all dried up, but then it's so that he can... I mean, fucking hell, there's some gruesome blade jobs in this match. I used to not miss this, but now... I mean, that's another thing. Do you think if Triple H and Shawn Michaels take over at any point, do they reinstitute bleeding if AEW's still doing it as well. Honestly, it comes down to a network stroke sponsorship decision, I think. Mm. Yeah, I mean, if it's a Disney product, I can't imagine they would want to endorse physical mutilation, in at least in that sense. I mean, they're always mutilating themselves physically. It's just underneath the skin that yeah. we don't see. But anyway, I don't really want to go on. It's weird, I had loads of notes, but I haven't actually referred to them at all in this. Um... But yeah. Oh, that's another weird thing about looking at their ages as well at this point. Uh, Shawn Michaels is 38, and Triple H is 34 at this point. Mm. But it's so weird as well that Shawn Michaels had made this massive comeback, and he was this old, old veteran of before the Attitude Era, and now, and you know, he's not even hit 40 at this stage. It's weird. Very weird. But he... his hair was still relatively luscious yes that there are some signs of fitting already yes yes and it's so funny as well that you know i mean they tried to do there was a thing at the, the, the night after that short jim jim ross wanted them to shake hands and uh end it and boy did they milk that as well mm-hmm. um and they didn't play it like the kane daniel bryan hug thing ah. but then kane but actually kane turned up and he's like i'm sick of this shit <laughs> and starts beating up sean and triple h just kind of like I, I don't know what to do. I'm not going to do anything. Mm. <laughs> because he was like... Because they were both selling how badly banged up they were yeah. afterwards. And Triple H with his trusty black eye makeup. It was like, there was nothing in you that was going to get a black eye. Oh. <laughs> there we go. Anyway. Anyway. That was that was what... Maybe we'll talk about one of the better Triple H Shawn Michaels matches at a later date. Yeah. I definitely want to talk about Triple H The Rock... Iron Man match at some point. That's a definite one I want to talk about. But um, I just didn't want us to keep going for the classics. And this isn't going for like trying to rediscover something. It's like I think this, I think when they're at their worst, 
they were channeling this match and I feel like they were like trying to we'll do it better this time through our proxies. See, when you said you didn't always want to go for the classics, I think one of my picks already hammered that home. Electrified cage match. <laughs> that was a farce. This was a, a failed... That was always condemned to fail. That was a weird novelty, like, freak show. This is like, you know, a minor work in a in a great director's filmography, but can sometimes say more about, as much about the filmmaker as any of their greats do. But anyway, that's it for this episode. Now, we're in G1 Climax times. Admittedly, this is, as everyone's been saying, the most underwhelming G1 blocks we've seen in many a year. So we're probably not going to do as many, but I get a sense that there's at least one five-star match that's happened already at time of recording based on the general patter of online and, and Meltzer's observations. So we're probably going to get a few Meltzer five-stars for the next few weeks. But if we don't, in the interim, when we do do match of the week again, we're going back to the UK. We're going back... To the place where our friendship was born. It's Bedworth Civic Hall, Simon. I know. And it is what? It's Blondie Barrett and Kendo Nagasaki taking on, in a weird little NXT bit of synergy in our, in our picks, Stephen Regal and Robbie Brookside. The Blonde Bombers, are they called at this point? They're called the Blonde something. The Blonde Bombers, yeah. Yeah. Their gear is does, something to behold. But will the match itself be a bit of a bomb? We'll have to wait. But until then, Simon, if people want to communicate with you through the means of conversational tools on apps, applications oh, within the internet, <laughs> on their mobile devices... How can they open these channels of communication? They can get in touch with me on Twitter where I'm so known as Simon Cross Free, free for the number of different weapons used in this match. My name's Lorcan Mullen. That's L-O-R-C-A-N-M-U-L-L-A for articulate, N for not articulate. That's my Twitter handle, Instagram, Facebook, Letterbox. If you put an at gmail.com at the end of it, that's my email address. Get in touch with the show at lmtyspod at gmail.com. Lmtyspod is also our Twitter and Facebook handles. But there's nothing left to say at this point, except that my name is Lorcan Jared Paul Mullen. I'm going to add my confirmation saint name to this. And my name is Simon Benjamin Cross. Thank you for letting us tell you something. Have a great week. Until the next week.